Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We're in Acts tonight, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 21 to 41. If you've got a Bible near you, there's some in the pews, there's probably something like that, an app or something on your phone. That'd be great to crack that open um, as we carry on in our series, Unstoppable. Um, The computer's having a few moments, but as you do that. As you find that passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 21, how about I pray? Ask God to help us understand his word tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Uh, Lord God, we praise you for its perfection. Uh, We praise you that your word points us to Jesus. And we pray, therefore, tonight that by your spirit and through your word, tonight, Father, we pray that we would see Jesus. Tonight, Father, through your word and by your spirit, we pray that we would hear Jesus. And Father, by your spirit, through your word, tonight, we pray that we would love Jesus. Uh, Father, again, for those of us here tonight who trust Jesus, Father, renew us, cut us to to our hearts afresh by your grace. Father, for those of us here tonight who are yet to to trust in the Lord Jesus, Father, please be at work by your spirit, softening hearts. Uh, Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, We've just been moving around at our house and I found my watch, which I haven't had for about three months, and I put it on my wrist tonight thinking, oh, this will be really helpful. It will keep me like, keep track of time, how long I'm preaching for. Um, the reality is I never look at my watch when I'm preaching. I apologise for that. Um, one time I was preaching at a little church up in the Adelaide Hills and I was preaching for quite a long time and I had no idea how long I was going for and there was no clock on the back wall, so I was, pre- I was preaching and preaching and I could tell people were kind of not really engaged with me, which is not you guys at all tonight, right? You're going to be there every minute. Anyway, I was like going and going and I sort of just called out. I said, oh, look, does anyone, does anyone know what the time is? Like how long have we been going for? This voice from the back calls out and goes, hey, mate, you don't need a watch, you need a calendar. <laughs> and, uh, and I never went back there again and they never asked me to come back again, so... Let's pray that that's not your experience tonight. Um, how do you know if you're an important person? How do you know how important you are? Um, these days, um, you know, if you want to know how important you are, perhaps you would go you know, onto your Facebook page and see how many friends you've got. Um, perhaps you'd go onto like, Twitter or your Instagram account and see how many people are following you and interested in what you've got to say. Or the other option, right, is you could Google it, right? You could Google yourself. Now, you may not believe this, but for the first time this week, I Googled my own name just to sort of get a sense of how popular is Simon Jackson. Um, As most of you would expect, not very important, basically, is the outcome. Um, But let me tell you, the top hits for Simon Jackson via Google are this. Um, Number one was a Jamaican cricketer. Never heard of him, yeah? Um, Number two, Paralympic judoka of Great Britain. Never heard of him. Um, A British playwright, filmmaker and poet was Simon Jackson. Never heard of him. Um, And here's my favourite. Number four was this guy. Simon Jackson, the founder of the Spirit Bear Youth Coalition. I have no idea what they do. I think they just kind of protect this really rare species of bear in the world. Um, But blah, blah, blah. There you go. You want to determine how important you are? Just kind of Google it. But if you want to know how, who is the most important figure in world history, according to the internet, well, it's, it's Jesus. Uh, but he's a complete outlier. Uh, several years ago, I don't know if it's on the screen, we might be having a struggle with it, but uh, there was a book written uh, called Who's Bigger? 
where historical figures really rank. Um, two blokes, right, with enormous... Let's see if it comes up. No, not happening. Um, two blokes with, like, really enormous brains kind of set out to find who's the most important figure in world history according to the internet. So they created some really crazy algorithms which people said, yes, this is very, you know, true and robust, etc. Um, what they did was their algorithms searched the internet to find names of people that occurred in kind of published works. So it couldn't just be, like, you jump online and a million times type in, you know, like... Um, what is it, like Kim Kardashian, Princess Diana, a million times? That doesn't work. The name had to appear in like a published work that was up on the internet. Um, who are the most important figures in world history according to their finding? Well, the highest ranked English person was at number four. Who do you reckon it was? Anyone? Not the Queen, Shakespeare. Anyone say Shakespeare? I didn't hear that. Yeah, great. William Shakespeare, number four. Most famous US person, number five, was Abraham Lincoln. Number two, the most important person, according to history, was Napoleon, a French guy. I think, like, Banjo Patterson might have been number one for Australia, and then Don Bradman, somewhere along that line, was the most famous people. But number one, right, by a country mile, is Jesus of Nazareth. Um, you know, they say, you know, it's not that, you know, he appeared in the top five, or it was, you know, he's amazing because he appeared in the top ten. He, like, he is, like out on his own in another kind of stratosphere of popularity. Um, they say, right, that one in every 10,000 words on the internet is the name Jesus. It's extraordinary. It just shows you, right, the significance, the influence of this guy upon world history. He's in a class of his own. There is absolutely no denying it. Jesus is the most important person in world history, like hashtag fact, right? Well, you might have guessed that, right? You might go, well, yeah, I reckon if someone said my top five, my top ten people who I think are the most important people in history, you'd want to put Jesus on there, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. But the central claim, and it comes towards the ends of Peter's talk that we look at tonight, where Peter is going with all that he's saying in Acts chapter 2, even if you miss all the detail tonight, it's this. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 36. Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's Lord. He's the eternal ruler of the universe. He's the Messiah, the promised saviour of the Old Testament that every person on planet Earth needs. Jesus is those two things, and you have to make up your mind about what you're going to do with him. Now, if you're joining us tonight, perhaps for the first time in a little while or for the first time ever, or if you've been here all the time, welcome back. It's good to see you. We're in the book of Acts. We're looking at this idea that the gospel of Jesus is unstoppable and he, he changes the world through the work of his church. Luke's the author of Acts. He's also the author of volume one, the gospel. And you can see what Luke's doing as he writes all this stuff, Luke, the gospel, and then the book of Acts. He, he writes back in chapter one, verse four of the gospel, I'm writing all this to you, to me, so that you might have certainty, confidence in the truth and the goodness of the Christian faith. Certainty that the events are true. Confident of the content. Certain of the goodness and the beauty of the Christian faith. And here in chapter 2, uh, we began to have a look at this last week, we have the events of Pentecost. Uh, recorded for us there. It's a non-repeatable, unique event in world history where Jesus Christ, who has died and risen again from the grave, ascended into heaven. He's poured out his, the Holy Spirit. 
God is Father, Son, and Spirit, pours out his Spirit upon his people in an unprecedented way. And now he lives with them. He lives in them in a permanent sense, like like it never happened before. It's a unique day in history. There are all kinds of things we could talk about tonight, but let me just, the main purpose, the main point of the day of Pentecost, you see it in the narrative that we had last week, you know, 120 or so followers of Jesus, the first follower of Jesus are gathered there in Jerusalem, begin to speak in multiple languages, and Egyptians and Turks and Iranians see these kind of formerly uneducated fishermen and others like that speaking fluently in their languages. And what's the point? The main point is that the Spirit has come so that all of God's people can now boldly and confidently preach the good news, declare the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the point. And that's exactly what you find Peter doing here in chapter 2 as he preaches a powerful sermon from verse 22 in particular onwards. You know, Peter, this extraordinary event happens, tongues of fire, racing wind, it's, you know, people speaking in all these languages. It's kind of an extraordinary event, but it's also kind of, I mean, imagine being there, right? It'd be pretty confusing. You know, so the people around it, back in chapter 2, 13, are saying, you know, what's going on here? These people are drunk. They've had too much wine. And Peter says, no, 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 no. It's, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. Now, you might think, like, I don't know, Hindley Street, Midnight on a Friday night, people kind of having a little bit too much to drink. Maybe Australia Day here in our country at 9am, people got up pretty early, got the barbie going, having a few drinks. But something remarkable was happening there. It's the fact that God has poured out his spirit. He's fulfilling a promise that he made 500 years earlier through the prophet Joel, that he'd pour out his spirit on all people, on his people. And Peter says from verse 22, like, guys, this is what you need to know. So have a look with me, verse 22. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. You need to know this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. He says, guys, you know, fellow Israelites, you're standing there. You you guys know most of this, he says. The events of Jesus' life, you witnessed these events. His death, many of you would have seen that about seven weeks ago. Oh, and he's raised to life again. And Peter says, we'll get back to that in a minute. But you know these events. And he says, and and can I just like remind us tonight, in case you've never heard this before, in case you've like forgotten it or never got it, the events, right, of Jesus' life and death. Um, the shape of his life, the contours of his existence on earth, they are undisputed. Like any credible, you know, full, you know, full-blown historian in our world says that this actually happened. This is real history. That's why Jesus, right, qualifies in that book, Who's Bigger, for being a genuine person of history. These events happen. No one denies the main events of Jesus' life or his death crucified at the hands of Romans. No one denies that. So Peter says to his audience, look, guys, you know all that. But what about the resurrection? Well, let's think about this. Two main points today and then a bit of an application. Who is this Jesus? If you're a note taker, here's a few points. The first, this is my big line, right? Jesus is the predicted Messiah. Chapter, that's the first point. 
The second, he's the exalted Lord. And thirdly, he makes a shocking offer. Jesus is the predicted Messiah. He's the exalted Lord, and he makes a shocking offer. Hey, there we go. I can, actually, like we, I can preach now because I've got the screen. Isn't that amazing? Um, Jesus is the predicted Messiah. Pick it up with me, verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And like now, at that point, right, you're saying, you know, just like they're back there and like us, we're saying, yeah, of course, dead people always rise to life again, yeah? You know, like, what's the big deal? I mean, they're saying, what is that story all about? That's a crazy idea that someone would come back from the dead. And Peter's response in verse 25, he basically says to them, you guys, you should know this. For a Jewish audience, this should be absolutely no surprise that this man, Jesus, would be raised from the dead because they were told about it a thousand years earlier. That's why Peter quotes from Psalm 16. The book of Psalms, the Old Testament songs of Jesus, many of them written by King David, probably the best king Israel ever had. These are the Psalms. David lived about a thousand years before his descendant, Jesus, came into the world. Peter says, remember how David wrote a thousand years ago, Psalm 16. And so he says, it's on the screen hopefully, from Psalm 16, Acts 2.25, he writes this. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. David wrote those words a thousand years before Jesus came into the world. Peter, said, Peter says to the audience in front of me, let me just point out something really obvious, right? King David, who wrote those words, he's dead. Like he's buried. And no doubt his bones and body is kind of decaying. Like he's, there's nothing much left of him. So who's David talking about? when he said that the king wouldn't die, the king wouldn't decay. Well, we're told, verse 29, it's coming up. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him and on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So David, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. See, Peter, right? You know, remember who Peter was? He was a bit of a failure. He turned his back on Jesus, denied him three times. Jesus graciously restores him. And now filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and says to the crowd, this is why you need to take our claims about the resurrection seriously because it's been predicted 1,000 years earlier. You've got to take it seriously. Imagine for a second, right, you, has anyone been to the Migration Museum here in Adelaide? Is it on Kintour Avenue? Yeah, just off North Terrace. I haven't been there for a long time. But imagine, right, there was a scroll. I think there's a picture of a scroll, like that. There you go. And that was at the Migration Museum. Um, and on this scroll, the scroll, this scroll was written in the year 1018, 1018. Um, it was from the UK, it travelled out and landed in Australia, and now it's on display. And, and it contained a whole bunch of really interesting things and ideas and thoughts, and in it, it said this. 
A woman shall come to rule the land of Australia. She will be born in Wales. Her father will be a psychiatric nurse. She will be educated at Unley High School. She will go to study law and arts at the University of Adelaide and the University of Melbourne. She'll be known at various times as the leader of the Labor Party, Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, and will become the first woman to hold the office of Prime Minister. She shall rise to rule without a national vote, but will suffer disaster while in office, following a challenge from an angry man wearing glasses. You know, and for centuries, right, you know, that, that, that had been said and written back in 1018, and for people, they'll go, whatever? A woman, like, leading Australia and an angry man wearing glasses, kind of challenging her and overcoming? But then someone says, that's Julia Gillard. That's, that's yeah, her dad was a psychiatric nurse. She was born in Wales, and, yep, she went to Unley High School and studied at Adelaide Uni and Melbourne Uni, and... She became the first female Prime Minister. That's Julia Gillard. It all fits. And at that point, you're going, wow, this is, like, this is extraordinary. It's extraordinary, right? And you'll probably kind of then take the rest of the scroll kind of seriously. Like, you'll go, wow, I wonder what else is in here. Do you realise that's what we have in the Old Testament? Predictions of where Jesus will be born, born of a virgin, uh, that he, where he would live, the titles that he would take and be given, they're all there. And alongside it, all the promises that, yes, he would die for the sins of all people, that he would conquer our greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, death, by being raised from the grave. A thousand years. You've got all these historical events that in 2018 no historian will deny having taken place, and predictions a thousand years earlier with incredible detail. And that, that, I find that really challenging. How do you explain that? He's the predicted Messiah, says Peter. You Jewish audience of the first century, you should have known that if you were standing there. I mean, like today, right, we may have less awareness of these things, but you just, do you see the level of detail of this prediction of Jesus Christ? That he would die and then rise and be the Messiah, the saviour that all of us need? He's a predicted Messiah. He's also the exalted Lord, says Peter. He's the exalted Lord. Um, pick it up with me at verse 32. It's coming up, I think. Yeah, there you go. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. You know, there were multiple witnesses, right? Hundreds of witnesses on one occasion. I mean, this is not just hearsay, a bit of gossip. He goes on, verse 33, He exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It's a slightly more technical argument here, right? But I think Peter's answering an objection from the crowd, which would go like this. Yes, Peter, we know that God said he would pour out his Holy Spirit, but God said that he would do it. And now you're saying that Jesus has done it. That's not what the Old Testament says. I reckon that's their objection. And Peter says, yeah, but Jesus is God. That's my paraphrase. That's what he's saying. That's why Peter quotes Psalm 110 to make this point. Verse 34, he says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord. It's sort of like God speaks to God. How does that work, right? Because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Always been predicted, right, that God's Son would pour out God the Holy Spirit upon people to transform their lives, to give them boldness to speak about him to the ends of the earth, to give them power to choose God, not themselves, to choose righteousness, not sin. And this is what Jesus is doing. Until verse 35, until when one day all of the enemies of God are put under the foot of Jesus. I think I said, like, that's the, the, the next great big event in world history. You know, not the next Commonwealth Games, not tonight seeing Australia get smashed again by the South Africans. Like, it's the next great event in world history is the return of Jesus where he will put all of his enemies under his feet. All those who, who haven't bowed the knee willingly to him. And then we come to the conclusion of Peter's sermon, his talk. This is where Peter has been heading all along. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Lord, God himself in the person of Jesus, come down from heaven, but now risen again. Jesus is Lord, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, Lord of the mission. And Messiah, the long-promised king of the Old Testament, who says, you need to trust me for the forgiveness of everything you've done wrong and I'll take you to be with me and I'll give you eternal life. Lord, Messiah. This Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Now the people standing in front of Peter, right, when Peter sort of says that, I think they recognise that verse 36 contains both like good news and some bad news, right? I mean, verse 36 is bad news on one hand, right? Because he says, God has made this Jesus who you crucified. You crucified God. You killed God in human flesh. That's that's bad news, wouldn't you agree? To kill God? But the good news? The good news, this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus has risen again and he's come back to give you a chance. Jesus is the Messiah and he can save you because he's not dead. For you and for me here tonight in North Adelaide, what do you make of that? Let me suggest, right, that the fact that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, I hope you realise that there are many credible reasons to believe that, to to, to pin your hopes on that, to, to give your life to that. You know, we have here references to witnesses. I haven't got into that very much tonight. You can ask me about it later. But we have predictions here, right, dating back over a thousand years before Jesus. Highly credible reasons that you have to take these things seriously. The claim that Jesus is Lord of the universe and that you need him to rescue you isn't just interesting, right? You have to make a decision on that. You know, let me put it this way, right? Let's say... This week, during work, um, you end up at a function, right, and you bump into this woman and she says, oh, hello, I'm the, I'm the princess of Denmark. And you, you kind of think to yourself, oh, really? That's interesting. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you're deluded, I don't know. But, you know, you go, well, that's, that's interesting. If you are, you know, you go, well, you know, I don't really take much interest in royal people. I don't take much interest in Denmark. I don't even know where Denmark is on the map. You find it interesting, but you don't really know. 
Let's say, though, she, you know, she comes up to you and she goes, oh, hello, I'm, I'm the princess of Denmark and I'm your biological mother. I mean, the interest level goes up there, doesn't it, right? You, can you go, OK, so, like, yep, maybe I'm going to take an interest in you right now. And it becomes personal, doesn't it? It's not just an interesting idea, it becomes kind of personal. Let's go, you meet this one. Hi, I'm the princess of Denmark, I'm your biological mother, and I just want to let you know that you actually have inherited from me a very rare blood disease that's going to kill you before you're 40, you need urgent help. Like, things have just gone up at a whole level, haven't they? Do you see that the claims of Jesus are not just interesting? You know, like Jesus turns up, hey, man, I make the number one most interesting person on the internet, yeah. Hey, and I've made, you know, people write some songs about me and there's lots of books out there that are published about me. Yeah, I'm pretty cool. But it's personal, isn't it? Because Jesus says, I am your creator. I made you from the dust and I love you. Oh, and you need me to save you as well from your sin, from your selfishness, from your self-absorption, from your wickedness, from your self-interest. And I'm the only one who can do that. Rather than death, I've come to give you life. The alternative, says Jesus, if you don't trust me, you face me ultimately as enemy. That's a different level, isn't it? That's a claim you have to engage with. It's not only interesting, it's not just personal, it's urgent. This Jesus, he's Lord and Messiah. This Jesus, he's the predicted Messiah. He, he's the predicted Messiah. He's the exalted Lord. And he also makes a shocking offer. What do I mean by that? Have a look at verse 36. should be on the screen. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then verse 37, when the people heard this, they were, say it with me, cut to the heart. Say it again, cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do with this news? What do we do? Let me just highlight something here, right? They were cut to the heart. It literally means the verb. They were stabbed. Stabbed through the heart like that. They had some insight, some understanding. The Holy Spirit's at work in these people, giving them insight to see and hear and, and know what Jesus is and who he is. To get this kind of right, let, let me just highlight a couple of things that these, this audience before Peter don't do. Two things they don't do at this point. Firstly, this is what they didn't do. They didn't make excuses. No doubt some in verse 37 who were standing there said, oh, that's terrible that those people on this side of the church killed Jesus and they were there and they nailed him to the cross, but thankfully we're sitting on this side of the church and we, didn't, we weren't there. Whew. None of them made excuses. They accept what Peter says. I think in the power of the Spirit, twice Peter says, chapter 2, verse 23, you put him to death. And verse 36, you crucified him. And the people recognise, they recognise they may not have driven the nails into Jesus. They may not have seen, been there mocking and spitting on him and slandering him. But they had the same attitude. 
Yeah, they, they were quite happy to listen to the odd sermon that Jesus preached. They probably enjoyed the occasional meal that Jesus put on after he'd done a miracle. They loved his healings, yeah? But to follow him, you know, to say, we need to die, we need you, Jesus, to die in our place, actually, no, I think life would be more convenient without you. We want you gone. They all recognise that. They don't object. They don't make excuses. The second thing they don't do is, right, they don't say, oh, no, we've broken the law. They don't say that. Oh, no. They were, no, they were cut to the heart, which is having this real sense of conviction that, that I've done something wrong, I've hurt something. You see, like, no one, maybe I'm speaking for myself, right, but no one feels like that they're cut to the heart, right, when they break the law, when they've done a couple of things wrong. As if to say, you know, the other day I was on the way to work and I was running late for work and so I was driving down the road at about 10 k's over the speed limit and then I happened to run through a red light and I was, oh, I was just so cut to the heart. No one says that. I don't say that. You might feel a little bit bad, like the impending $500 fine that's probably going to land in your box pretty soon. You know, you go to an interview, right, and you, you, know, you exaggerate a little bit, you tell a bit of a lie to kind of make yourself look a bit more impressive, and, and afterwards you think, oh, well, it wasn't that big an exaggeration, but like, you don't feel cut to the heart, right? Again, I might be completely alone here. We only feel bad, right, when we've done something relationally significant, when we've wronged something, someone relationally. So you, t- you, you tell a lie when you're a witness in a courtroom and someone goes to prison based on your testimony. I mean, I think you'll feel a little bit cut to the heart, unless you're a rock. You run the red light and you happen to knock down a child. I think you'll feel a little bit bad and cut to the heart for that. That's significant. The people here before Peter aren't sort of standing there going, you know, oh, we've done something wrong, well, I've, I've broken the law. No, they know what they've done here. This, is, this Jesus is God, their maker. We've, we've said, God, I don't want you. And now we realise that's, that's not a small thing. It's not just breaking one or two laws, but relationally they've broken God's heart. Relationally, it's a, it's a catastrophic thing. They feel it so deeply. They're cut to the heart. So they ask in verse 37, what do we do? And brothers and sisters and friends here tonight, here is the shocking offer that Jesus makes through Peter on this day. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For two things, for the forgiveness of your sins and secondly, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two things. Why do I say it's shocking? Here's why I say it's shocking, because the narrative in our culture, the narrative on the streets of our city, in our homes, in our our culture just generally is, is this. Our stories go like this, right? You've killed him, but he's come back from the dead. Now he's going to get you. Yeah? That's the narrative of our world. You killed him. He's come back from the dead, and now he's going to get you. I loved it last week when Helen gave her testimony. Sorry to put you on the spot, Helen. But she gave this beautiful moment. I remember lots of it, but this is the thing that really stood out. Um, Helen mentioned, right, that God created us, right, and he created us, correct me if I'm wrong, he created us in love, and we turned our back on him. That's the fall, is that right? Yeah, that's the fall. And 
and he created us in love. We rejected him. We fell from our place in relationship with him. And then everything went pear-shaped. We start killing each other. We start abusing everybody. It's like it's terrible. And then God gets to this spot where he looks at what he's done and he goes, that's not good. He kind of says, I wish I could just like start again. And I think you said, Helen, like you probably would have done that. I would have done that. But in love, he didn't do that. But that's, that's the narrative of our world, isn't it? Like, you killed him, he's now back alive again, and he's going to get you. Anyone seen The Revenant, the movie Revenant? It's a pretty intense film. I'm, not, like, I should be, I'm a pastor, I could be your pastor, I should say don't watch The Revenant. Um, you know, fix your mind on good things, high lofty things, keep your focus on Jesus. But, so don't see The Revenant, but I'll tell you all about it. Um, the Revenant, good film, won lots of Oscars for its cinematography and acting and really long, boring speeches. Um, but uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in The Revenant, um, he's mauled by a bear, um, he will survive, but the Tom Hardy character wants to kill him. Uh, Tom Hardy character kills Leo's son, uh, leaves Leonardo to die. It's only because um, this sort of American Indian mystic medicine guy kind of comes along and applies medicine that Leo lives. Um, he kind of comes back to life. So what, is, what, what, is, what do you think Leo wants to do to the Tom Hardy character now that he's back alive again? Ask him around for dinner? You know, say, mate, it's fine. Why does this carry on? He wants to kill him. You tried to kill me, I've come back from the dead, I'm going to smash you. That's The Revenant, right? And pretty much any other Quentin Tarantino-style movie, if you've ever seen them. Kill Bill, Django, you name it. But the gospel's totally different, right? Totally different. You killed him, God raised him, and Jesus says, I want to forgive you for all that you've done. It's just, it's like upside down. It's very different. That's not how the story of the world runs, but that's because Jesus is not of this world. Jesus isn't just an ordinary figure of human history. He's extraordinary. Peter says, repent, turn around. Instead of walking away from God, turn back to him and say, I need you. I recognise that this Jesus is his Lord, he's Messiah, he's the King, he's the one that I've needed. Only if I trust in Jesus, you know, and then he, he gives you forgiveness of sins. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. You know, and forgiveness of sins, right, for some of us, that's a whole lot. When I became a Christian, I had to be forgiven of a whole lot. I'll tell you about that another time. For some of us here tonight, it's not that much. But we all need it. Forgiveness of sins, and the second thing you receive, the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 38. God himself will come and live in you and change you to be more like the person God made you to be. The thing that I loved about what Sam Albury said on Tuesday night, when you come to know Jesus, he kind of makes you all that you were meant to be before the fall. He makes you human because you meet the true human. An external power to change you. And that's, that's massively countercultural as well. In our world, the narrative of the 21st century, according to Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, who is pretty much who I listen to with my children every day on the way to school, is essentially look to the hero inside yourself. You're not guilty. You can do anything. I heard 
of the kindy the other day where the kids are taught to sing to the tune of Ferajaka. I am special, I am special, look at me. Do you want to sing it with me? <laughs> yeah, they're phenomenally special. But that idea that they can be anything they want to be, anything they desire, is just not true. None of us can be anything we want to be. But God makes us all that we were meant to be. When we're honest, changing ourselves is really hard, but it's part of the promise of God. The one you've killed but who's risen again comes and says, I'll forgive you, trust me, and I will give you my spirit. Extraordinary power to change. Power outside of you now comes in to dwell so that you might have a transformed life so that one day you'll see Jesus and be like him. Chapter one, chapter three of John's letter, first letter. It's a shocking offer. Not vengeance, but grace. Not punishment, but forgiveness. Not justice. We deserve justice, but mercy. It's a shocking offer. Now for you and me, we didn't crucify Jesus, but on our own naturally, we want God out of our lives. Quite happy to take the good things that he offers us in his world, but, well, it's easy not to give an account to him. Naturally, we want him dead. But he says, I'm risen. Here's my offer to you, forgiveness of sins, my spirit to come and dwell within you. And your obligation is repent. Turn back to God. Trust him. Stop living your own way and... Recognize that Jesus is Lord. This Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom I need desperately to save me. There is very, every good reason to do so. Jesus isn't asking you to take some, he's not asking us to take some massive leap into the dark like all the new atheists would ask us to do. He's asking you to realize that that his work, his person, his life, his resurrection was predicted thousands of years earlier. Repent and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and God's power to live life to the full, both today, tomorrow, and forever. And there's a personal offer to this because tonight we we can't be indifferent to Jesus, the most significant, the most influential person to ever walk on earth. If you're here tonight and you don't trust Jesus, I want to, in the power of God's Spirit, call you to repent today. Turn back to God. Trust this Jesus. Why wouldn't you do that tonight? And join with the 3,000 who on that day when Peter's preaching were cut to the heart and and join God's family to enjoy him both then and forever. I look forward to meeting those 3,000 when Jesus comes back and the billions that have trusted in him since. I'm going to finish I did have a quote on the screen, but we're not going to look at that. It was from an old dead guy who didn't die too long ago. I've got another quote from a guy who died a little while ago, but I think it's awesome. Um, indulge me. I don't, we've moved, and I don't have a printer, so I've gone old style. Um, and, uh, but as we close, listen to this. This is, this is what John Calvin says on the centrality and the comprehensiveness of Christ. He says this. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. 
if we seek strength that lies in his dominion, if purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears at his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all aspects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his ascension, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of future judgment in the power given him to judge. In short, Calvin says, since rich store of every kind of good abound in this Jesus, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. What grace, eh? Everything you need, you'll find in this Jesus. Lord and Messiah. Trust him. And if you do trust him, keep trusting him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this Jesus whom we've been thinking upon tonight. And Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus. We praise you, Father, for his life. We praise you for his death. We praise you for his resurrection. We praise you for his ascension and we praise you that he is right at this minute ruling and reigning at your right hand, Father. Father, we thank you that Jesus is in complete control. He, he's in charge of the mission. He loves the church. Father, we pray that we would love him in the power of your spirit. So, Father, refresh tonight. Grow in us bigger hearts for Jesus. Grow in us bold hearts to proclaim this Jesus. Father, tonight, give us humility to trust this Jesus. Father, to not follow the narratives and stories and ways of this world, but to fix our eyes on the one who is out of this world. Father, help us to keep trusting Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.